Reason to sing, what a great God we serve. (laughs) And Father, we're grateful that we can come before you today and know that you're here meeting with us and you want to teach us, you want to speak to us, you want to minister to us, whatever the needs are today, Father, we just bring them before you now. And as certain needs were shared with me this morning, even Father, we lift those to you. We lift those folks up to you, those families up to you, those issues, those concerns, those cares, everything, Father, we surrender to you. And may you be glorified in this place today. This is your church. We are your people. And we're thankful that you are our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Good morning, everyone. If you would open up your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 21, we're going to be covering a fair amount of territory this morning. Verses 21, Acts 21, 27 to Acts 22, 21. And today's message is entitled, The Power of a Testimony. And if you belong to Jesus, you have one. You have a testimony. And we're going to talk about Paul's testimony today and how that can relate to ours as well. But recall when when the Apostle Paul made his way to the city of Jerusalem, this was following, of course, his third missionary journey. He came to the city in spite of the warning of the Holy Spirit that tribulation and imprisonment would come to him. But that didn't stand in his way. He wouldn't be warmly received there, but rather quite the opposite. There was opposition. Well, why would he have gone to Jerusalem under these conditions? Well, there was three reasons. The first, he wanted to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, which is one of the three major feasts. Second, there was an offering that, or offerings that were given to Paul to bring to the church of Jerusalem from the Gentile churches that he visited as an expression of love and unity among those churches. And third, Paul was operating under the conviction that if he had just one more opportunity to preach to the religious Jews his reason for believing in Jesus as Messiah and Savior of the world, that somehow, in some way, God would use that to kind of flip a light switch and a light would go on and they would become followers of Jesus. That was Paul's heart, that his countrymen would come to know Jesus. Well, upon his arrival in Jerusalem, James, the half-brother of Jesus, told Paul that there's some rumors circulating about how insistent that you are about following the law of Moses as a means of salvation in addition to believing in Jesus Christ. Well, let that be a warning to all of us. It's never Jesus and anything. It is Jesus alone that brings salvation. And what they shared with Paul is we have these, these four young men that have taken a vow, and we talked about the Nazarite vow last week. And Paul, would you be willing as a show of your Jewish heritage, and that you don't stand against your Jewish heritage to pay the price for the sacrifices associated with this Nazarite vow. So Paul, who was very much interested about peace and establishing a peaceful relationship between the Jews and Jerusalem, he agreed to sponsor these four men and their Nazarite vow. Are you okay? An aunt. An aunt. Hopefully you took dominion over it. (laughs) Well, this, of course, was consistent with 
Paul's desire, as we talked about last week, to be all things to all men in order that they would be saved. And remember, this wasn't an effort on Paul's part to bring any kind of compromise to any degree to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but rather to show respect to them for their heritage. So seven days into this, while Paul was worshiping God in a Jewish temple, we find as we pick up in verse 27 of Acts chapter 21, it says, And when the seven days were almost ended... The Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him, saw Paul in a temple, stirred up all the people, and they laid hands on him. They stirred the people up, they rushed to the apostle Paul and took hold of him, and they arrested him and cried out to the Jews in the temple, what we find in verses 28 and 29, crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people, and the law and this place, and further brought Greeks also into the temple, and have polluted this holy place. For they had seen before him in the city Trophimus, an Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. So they built this accusation against the apostle Paul for supposing, that's a problem, isn't it, when we suppose something, for supposing that he was bringing this Gentile into the temple, because previously they had seen Paul with this man Trophimus. He was a Gentile from Ephesus that traveled with Paul in order to bring these offerings to the church at Jerusalem. These Jews made an accusation that came from the Roman province of Asia, which is western Turkey. And it's likely that they were familiar with the Apostle Paul's ministry in Ephesus. They probably spent some time there opposing his work and establishing the churches. So he's got a following. However, it is not a good following that came to Jerusalem. Now remember the season that they're in. It's the time of the Feast of Pentecost. There's also the, the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Passover, three great feasts on the Jewish calendar. And during those feasts, the population in the city of Jerusalem would explode to about 2 million people because it was mandated in the law that all Jewish males were to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem during these three major feasts. Well, this accusation concerning Trophimus was an absolute lie. It was inconceivable in Paul's mind that he would ever bring a Gentile into the section of the temple that was reserved solely for the Jews. Well, the lie, as many lies do, it got some traction. And there were many people eager to believe that lie. So the whole situation here in this temple, outside the temple, it begins to explode. And it explodes not only in the region of the temple, but also in the city of Jerusalem. And a riot ensued. We see this in verses 30 and 31. It says, And all the city was moved, and the people ran together, and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple, and forthwith the doors were shut. And as they went about to kill him, tidings came to the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. So this riot began in a temple. It spread into the city. And what's happened here is we find it's, it's a mob scene. And there's a mob that's more dangerous. There's no mob more dangerous than a religious mob, misguided and wrong. So they seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple and into the court of the Gentiles, and they beat him with the intention to beat him to death. Well, word spread, and the word spread to the captain 
the chief captain, that all of Jerusalem was in an uproar. Now, during this time of these great feasts, there was a lot of guards, as you might expect, high security, high alert, because if things got out of hand, it could lead to a revolt against the Roman Empire. And they were very careful not to do anything against the Roman Empire. So this chief captain, he sent centurions and soldiers, we see in verse 32, who immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down unto them. And when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left or stopped beating Paul. So these soldiers are trying to bring a calm. And this intervention on their part, it spared Paul's life. Then the chief captain, verse 33, came near and took Paul and commanded him to be bound with two chains and demanded who he was or asked who he was and what he had done. And some cried one thing and some another among the multitude. And when he could not know the certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle. So things got so out of hand that the mob wasn't even clear what they were doing and why they were doing it. And when you have a mob scene, oftentimes people join in simply for the sake of joining into the mob, not understanding what they're doing, maybe assuming it was for a right cause or a just cause, and somebody therefore must be guilty. And that's what happened here. It's nothing new, is it? So when the chief captain heard all of this, with no real answers, they said they cried one thing and another thing. Nobody knew what really was going on. The chief captain commanded Paul to be taken away. And they took him into a place called the Antonio Fortress. And we see in verses 35 and 46, And when he was come upon the stairs, the stairs of the, the fortress, so it was that he was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people, or carried by the soldiers for the violence of the mob of people. For the multitude of the people followed after crying, away with him. While Paul's being taken away, it's as if a light bulb went off in his head. He realized that he was about to lose the opportunity to accomplish his heart's desire and that is to speak to the people, the religious people, about Jesus. His mind isn't focused on himself. His mind is not focused on the beating that he just took because that wasn't his priority. His only priority was the people that he wanted to bring the truth to. So he requested an opportunity by this chief captain or from this chief captain to speak to the people. Rather than run from the mob, he says, I want to talk to them. And we see in verses 37 and 38, as Paul was, was led into the castle, he said to the chief captain, May I speak unto thee, who said, Canst thou speak Greek? Art thou not that Egyptian which before these days made an uproar and lettest out into the, the wilderness 4,000 men that were murderers? Well, the commander or chief captain here, it says he was surprised that Paul could speak Greek. He had supposed that Paul was an Egyptian insurrectionist that previously escaped apprehension by Rome. Well, evidently, this Egyptian rebel was unable or refused to speak Greek. So this came as a surprise to this commander. The historian Josephus, he wrote of this Egyptian imposter that claimed to be a prophet. 
He said that this Egyptian had gathered 4,000 followers, and in 54 AD, they came to the Mount of Olives, promising his followers that the walls of Jerusalem would collapse at his command. Instead, the Roman army heard, army heard of this and killed some, captured others, and some escaped. Well, this Egyptian that they're talking about here was one that escaped. And they thought that this Egyptian was the Apostle Paul. Clearly, the people would have loved to lay their hands on this Egyptian that had caused so much trouble. So when the commander saw the riot in the temple, he assumed that the center of the attention was this Egyptian and that the Jews were bringing their wrath upon him. So Paul made the request to speak. And it's amazing to me that his, his request was granted. Clearly, the Lord had his hand on this. Maybe the chief captain allowed, because he wanted to understand for himself the charges that were being laid against Paul, to provide an explanation for his superior. So he allowed Paul the opportunity to speak so he could hear for himself. And Paul shared with his commander who, the truth of who he was. And we see this in verse 39. Paul said, I'm a man which am, of, uh, which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, a city of no mean city, and I beseech thee, suffer me to speak to the people. And when he had given him license or permission, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with the hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue. And and we're going to get into what he shared in just a minute. But I find this fascinating because here is the Apostle Paul who just moments before was about to be put to death standing in Antonia Fortress, standing above the people, and he raised his hand, and the people became silent. Now remember, this is a mob. They wanted to tear him apart. Paul raised his hand, and guess what? Silence fell over the whole crowd. And he spoke in the Hebrew tongue. Now, it doesn't mean that he spoke Hebrew. He spoke in the common language of the Hebrews. That's what this means, which is Aramaic. And clearly, God had his hand upon the apostle Paul. Psalm 77, verse 14, says, You are the God who does wonders, and God's doing a wonder here. You have declared your strength among the peoples. Deuteronomy 31, verse 8, And the Lord, He is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Maybe there's some of you here that are going through difficulty right now, and maybe you're wondering, where's the Lord in all of this? Well, the Lord hasn't left. He has not departed. He says here, he will never forsake you. So don't fear or don't be dismayed. He will not leave you. Hang on to that. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says, but you shall receive power. This is, of course, speaking of Pentecost. After the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Where's Paul? He's in Jerusalem. And the power of God's Holy Spirit is upon him. We see it demonstrated here. Well, Paul began to speak. He addressed the crowd Brothers and sisters, 
Those were used, those same words used by Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse 2. He said, Men and brethren and fathers, hearken, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. Clearly, this left a lasting impression on Paul. So here he says in verse or chapter 22, my men, brethren and fathers, hear, my, hear ye my defense, which I make unto you now. Now, think about this for a minute. When you, when you consider those words Paul just spoke, he's, he, he's saying, you're going to hear my defense. And I want to get into this in just a second. And when they heard that he spoke in Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silent, and he continued on. Now, let's pause after verse 2. Pretend you don't know what happens after this verse. Because Paul said, hear my defense. Pretend you don't know what's going to take place. Paul has their attention now. The crowd's been silenced. They're waiting to hear what Paul has to say. But don't know what he will say. Say you're in this crowd and you ask yourself, what would be your best guess of what Paul would say to this crowd in this environment after he says, I'm going to share with you my defense. Well, this is the day that Paul waited for for 25 years since he was converted on the road to Damascus. That one day he would stand before the crowd and deliver a single sermon to them. It's like a dream come true. An opportunity to speak to them about Jesus the Messiah. And what will he say to them? Well, if you didn't know the rest of the story... I would absolutely anticipate with certainty what he would say in his defense. Probably, hey, these accusations that you've made against me, they're all wrong. The crowd was wrong. I did no wrong. I never spoke against Moses. I never spoke against the law. I never spoke against the temple. That's what I would think he would say. But not only that, but that Paul would present to the people an airtight case for Jesus as the promised Messiah in referencing the, the prophetic scriptures from the Old Testament. You see, that was a pattern of his. Remember, as we studied through the book of Acts, synagogue after synagogue after synagogue that he went to, he would open up the Old Testament and say, hey, this is speaking of Jesus the Messiah. But he didn't do that. And it's kind of shocking but here's what he did say, verses 3 through 21. We're going to read these, and then we're going to go through it. He said, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God, as ye all are this day. And I persecuted this way are the followers of the way, which is followers of Jesus, unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest doth bear me witness, and all the estate of the elders, from whom I received letters unto the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring them which were there bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. And it came to pass that as I made my journey, and was come nigh unto Damascus about noon, Suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me, and I fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. And they that were with me saw indeed that light, and were afraid, and they heard not the voice of him that spoke to me. 
And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, arise and go into Damascus, and there it shall be told of thee all things which are appointed for thee to do. And when I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came to Damascus, and one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there, came to me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. In the same hour I looked up upon him. And he said, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will, and see that just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and have heard. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins according to the name of the Lord. And it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance, and saw him saying unto me, Make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. And I said, Lord, they know that I was imprisoned, and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death and kept the raiment of them that slew him. And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. Now, I don't want to get specifically into the the whole text here because we studied this in Acts chapter 9, but there's some things we need to talk about. Because here we see this, this theological and intellectual giant Paul the Apostle, and instead, of, instead was led to give the crowd his testimony. I would have never expected that if I was in the crowd. He shared his salvation story, how he became a follower of Jesus Christ, how he became a Christian. And as he stands before them, he understands what they don't yet know. And that is that his life is an absolute miracle of God's Holy Spirit. And Paul knew that to be true. His spiritual birth was the only explanation of this man that was standing before them. So he shared the, the, the story of what or who it was that changed his life. I mean, he went armed with, with letters to convict and to imprison and to beat Christians and put them to death. And here he is, standing before them, a changed man. And I believe that the greatest thing after Jesus Christ and the witness of the Word of God, the greatest testimony to the power and reality of Christianity in the world today is the millions upon millions upon millions of changed lives that the gospel has impacted for over 2,000 years. Change lives of people from every single corner of the world, every race, every culture, absolute diversity throughout the world, God saving men and women from every conceivable sin, every conceivable addiction, every conceivable problem, every conceivable background and circumstance that existed throughout the ages. And all of that, all of those changes are a testimony of the power of God. You see, family, a testimony is a powerful thing, and Paul knew it. In my surprise to Paul sharing his testimony to this crowd in this setting speaks of me losing sight of the power of a testimony. That shouldn't surprise me. But as I read this and I consider the crowd, I got to say, it surprised me that that was his defense. 
Well, simply put, our testimony is our salvation story. How you and I came to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and to receive the new birth, to be born again. Now, testimony is made up of three simple elements. First, a description of who we were and what we were like before we became Christians. Second, the second element of our testimony, how I came into contact with the gospel, how it was shared with me, the truth of salvation through Jesus Christ and how I put my trust in him for that salvation. And third, the third element is how my life has been affected by and through this new birth. And we find every single element that, that I just shared with you in this passage that we just read. And there is a sense that in which every single Christian has the same testimony and that every one of us has this testimony made up of those three elements. Again, who we were. Second, how we came in contact with the gospel. And third, how our life has changed. But there's also another another, excuse me, element, another sense that no two testimonies are ever the same and as different as the fingerprints that you have on your hands. And they are different in the circumstances related to our conversion. I mean, there's three common elements, but then those, those differences, how the circumstances, what the circumstances were in our conversion, how old were we? Right there, I was 38 years old where we were, what we were doing at the time. And you know, some people come to Christ in the very deepest and darkest places in their life. Many of us have. Others have seen the glory and love of God from the mountaintops of life. Some have cried out to Jesus in their despair and in their suffering. I mean, it's all different. All of us have come to Christ as a result. And here's another common thing. Someone was praying for you. And there was people praying for me. Prayer works. When you don't know what else to do, pray. God hears. He knows, he knows your heart. He knows your concern. Pray, pray, and pray some more. But you know, every conversion is unique for this reason. Because we're all unique. Each of us is unique, and Jesus knows how to meet us in our uniqueness because he created us uniquely and wonderfully. And that's why we never get tired of hearing the salvation stories of others, even though we have our own. Like ours fundamentally, but different in other ways. And to hear the uniqueness of the story, hearing what God did and how he did it in the lives of others, I find that fascinating, don't you? I find it encouraging, don't you? I find it inspiring. So what we see here in verses 3 through 21, Paul gave us testimony. And when we studied his testimony in, in depth, it was, again, in Acts 9. But let's look how it's been broken down here in view of the elements we just spoke of. In verses 1 through 5, Paul describes who he was before he became a Christian. And what he's saying here to this mob is this, hey, I was just like you. 
I was just like you. I rejected Jesus without even knowing him. And family, there's people in this world today that stand against Jesus. They reject Jesus without even knowing a single thing about him. Because it becomes a mob mentality at times, doesn't it? They get on the bandwagon. And it becomes dangerous. Sometimes they reject him without knowing a single thing about even the Old Testament or refuse to check it out to see if Jesus is, that claimed to be the Messiah is, lines up with the prophetic passages that point to him. Paul tells these people that he was a Jew born in Tarsus, brought into Jerusalem. In other words, I'm from the same area as you. In other words, I'm just like you. He mentions he was trained under the Rabbi Gamaliel. And Rabbi Gamaliel was one of the very prominent rabbis in the time, according to, and he lived according to the strict manner of the law. Paul embraced the strictness of the law of Moses, and he lived by it. And when Paul mentioned Gamaliel's name, that got their attention because there was just a small handful of people that, that could have been trained by him. He spoke of being zealous for God. We see this in verse 3. There was a fire in him for righteousness without a single trace of lukewarmness in his effort to follow after the law. He said, I was righteous. In verses 4 and 5, he says how he persecuted Christians to the point of death. And as he's looking out among this crowd, he begins to make eye contact with those that know what he's saying is true. Mentions the high priest here. The elders, the members of the Sanhedrin, they could testify to what Paul was saying. And he was saying, I was exactly as you are today. But the question in their minds, which is the same question that people have that still live the life that we once lived when we shared our testimony, when you tell them the lifestyle that you came from, the things you did, the things you embraced, when you tell them why you came out of it, and how you came out of it, everyone listening is paying attention to what you're saying because they can relate to, their, to it in their life in some way. And they could say, yeah, just like Paul. I was like one of you. I was just like you. And it may lead a person to say something like this. It, I sense something lacking in me while I see now contentment in you. There's a change that's taken place. And sometimes it brings up a question like this. What was wrong with who you were? What was wrong with the life you lived back then? And why the change? Who was it or what was it that changed you? Well, Paul then went on to tell them the circumstances that brought him to trust in Jesus in verses 6 through 13, his Damascus Road experience. And everything he would share in his Damascus Road experience is about a personal contact with the risen living Jesus Christ and evidence that Jesus was not as Paul previously believed that his body was still dead and in the grave or even stolen away. Paul says, I was saved and changed by a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And for Paul, that occurred when, he, when the Lord knocked Paul to the ground on his way to Damascus to arrest and put Christians to death. And when Paul was taken to the ground, he lost his sight, and Jesus revealed himself to Paul, at which point he said, Who are you, Lord? 
Who are you, Lord? And Jesus answered, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you persecuted. In sharing this, Paul's saying to the, to the mob that the man that began that trip, that road to Damascus journey, was a totally different man after he arrived in Damascus. Something happened along the way. He had an encounter with the true and living God. He entered into a relationship with him, and he declared Jesus Christ as Lord of his life, and he was saved. And Paul, of course, pointed to the Holy Spirit as the one who did this work in changing him. In verses 14 through 21, Paul shared with the crowd what his life had become after his conversion, now giving his life completely to the call that God has placed upon his life. And it is obedience to God's commandments and to his word and following God's plan for his life. That's what's most important to Paul now. And the life I now live is a byproduct of my spiritual birth. What you're seeing is what God has done in my life. This is what he's sharing. My priorities have changed. My top priority is obeying God. No longer do I have a desire for greatness to be recognized among men as a, as a great man, a member of the Sanhedrin, a powerful man, a powerful religious man. But now my desire is that Jesus Christ would be glorified in my life. That was Paul's heart. Well, how about our individual testimony as Christians? I believe it's important to be reminded of the absolute miracle that your life is as a Christian. It's important to stop and consider all the things that God has done in your life before you were saved just to keep you alive. Think about that for a minute. God spared your life in order that you would come to him. He spared you from, from all the, the, the foolish living, the wasteful decisions just so you could hear the gospel from someone and that you could become saved. And how we can look back over the course of our lives, how God had protected us and prepared us in advance to receive and embrace the gospel. And then the supernatural life that God gave to us when we embrace salvation through Christ. And then to realize that this truth of the God that has made me a new creature, this is real, this is genuine. God has made changes. I was this way and now I'm another way. And how we need to remember our salvation story. And you know, oftentimes when we see people that are not Christians, they see us as Christians, maybe you meet somebody today even. They see you for who you are, as, as a, a, the person you are today in Jesus Christ. And they have no idea from where you've come or who you were or the kind of things you involved your life in because you're changed. And if you met the Apostle Paul post-salvation with no knowledge from where he came, you probably never recognized the extent of the miracle that he was. Same for you too. What people see is what God has made you into. And they have no idea who you were. They have no idea that you, aren't, you weren't always like you are today. They look at you perhaps like you never tasted difficulty or experienced the pain of foolish living and careless risk-taking. But you know. Because that's who you were. 
And they may think your life has always been like it is now, a little experience with the ways of the world. But the truth is this. We lived a life that was governed by the flesh and led by the devil. They don't realize that the things that you once embraced, embraced, God used to bring you to the need for him. And there's many, many pieces in the puzzle of your life. Many steps that God has ordained for you to take in order to bring you to that place where you would finally submit and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you can never tell what's underneath that righteous garment of salvation that you wear. People can't see it. But God has given you that righteous garment of salvation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And that's what people see. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now notice too, regarding Paul's testimony, that not all testimonies deliver a person from harmful lifestyles from addictions or just major problems that we encounter and we go through. In Paul's case, he was delivered out of religion. He was delivered out of religion, a deeply held religion that was erroneous and harmful because he was committing murder in order to please the Lord. Now, come on, that doesn't happen that way. But he was delivered from that. And you know, the majority of people that get saved from a religious background think that a religion can save a person. I was taught that, not here. Before I came to Christ, I thought, I know I was told that this church can save you. The only way you can get to heaven is through this church. But you know what? A religion cannot save, a church cannot save. Billy Graham cannot save a person or could not. Only Jesus saves. And the important thing is this. How can I be forgiven of my sins? How can I have a relationship with God? And there's only one answer, one right answer, one suitable answer, and that is Jesus, faith and trust in Jesus Christ. No matter how religious a person is, apart from Christ, you know what? There is no salvation. And so many people these days are so incredibly deceived thinking that there's some other way for me to somehow please God by what I do rather than embracing what he has done. And listen, I could never do what God has done through his son Jesus Christ because he was a perfect sacrifice. And his blood was shed in place of my blood being shed because I deserve punishment. I deserve death. But Jesus took that upon himself. Why? For me and for you. You know, I think of Nicodemus. Not unlike the Apostle Paul before Paul became saved. Nicodemus, a very, very higher higher up in the religious authority and hierarchy. And Jesus, and he had a conversation. We see this in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And there was a, a, a man of the Pharisees. He was a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. Named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, 
For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus, of course, listened to him. And then he went right to the core of the matter. He said to Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What's Jesus saying? See, you need to be born again. A spiritual birth. Nicodemus, your religious system cannot save you. You see, Nicodemus was deeply religious, but deeply lost. Because he hadn't trusted in Christ yet. Jesus said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. In other words, Nicodemus, you must enter into a relationship with God through me. Through me. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to my Father except through me. Nicodemus, you must trust in me. Dan, you must trust in Jesus. You, you, you. We must trust in Jesus for the work of salvation and no other. I want to close with this. Be ready to share your testimony when opportunities arise. And when you think about the condition of the world today, I think you would agree with me, it's, it's rough. Things seem to be upside down, don't they? Men call good evil and evil good. When you think about the condition of the world, and things are running through your mind right now, I'm sure people have a lot of questions. Questions like, where is this going to end? What's it going to lead to? The Bible has all the answers. What's it going to lead to? What is the meaning of life? You know, what is my purpose? How do I fit into this world? And why am I here? You see, those are questions of seekers looking for answers, but not sure exactly where to look. And we can respond something like this I understand. I understand your concern. I hear your questions. And I too search for fulfillment and for purpose. And in spite of all that I see around me in this world today, I have hope. These things don't frighten me because God says they were going to happen. Yet I was afraid at one point in my life. But God has given me his peace because I've trusted in him. All the answers that I couldn't find in the world, I've found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And someone took the time to pray for me. Many people prayed for me. Someone told me about Jesus. Somebody told me why he came. Somebody told me that there was a penalty for sin that I could never pay, but would be paid and could be paid and was paid by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You see, perfect justice says somebody's got to pay the price, right? 
Jesus paid the price for my sin. A price I could never pay. Jesus paid it all. The penalty for my sin, people told me about how I need to be forgiven. And there's only one way to be forgiven. And that is by the one to whom we have offended. And when we think about it, sin is entirely against God. You know, David said, unto thee and thee only have I sinned. Yeah, our sin affects other people, right? But you see, sin is a violation of God's perfect commands. And if they're God's perfect commands and we don't follow His perfect commands, then we've sinned against God. So where does forgiveness need to come from? If we've sinned against God, who would forgive us of our sin? Who can blot out our sin? Only God. Because sin is against Him. And God would say, I love you. And I've made a way for you. All the stuff you've been dealing with, all the questions that you have, all the guilt that you carry, all the pain you've experienced through your, own, through your own doings and your own hand. Every single one of those things is an offense against me, a sin against me, but I've come to forgive you of your sin. I sent my son, Jesus Christ, to lay his life down on a cross. Suffered brutally. Crucified. Pierced. Whipped. Mocked. And those are only the physical aspects. There was a greater pain that Jesus suffered. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he ask that question? Well, because at their very moment in time, Jesus took upon my sin, your sin, the sin of the whole world upon him, and his father had to turn the other way. Then Jesus would declare, it is finished. His life given so my life could be spared. And what does he say to us? Just trust in that. Trust in me. Don't try to trust in yourself to somehow climb your way into heaven because it can't happen. You need somebody to bring you there. And that is Jesus. For those that trusted in Christ, he says, I hold you in the palm of my hand. And how do we get there? Well, we trust in Jesus Christ. We come before him humbly. You know, as Paul had shared with these people here, that there's one way, and it's Jesus. And we come to him and admit. See, that's the first step. Admit that we've messed up. You know, God knows. He knows everything we've done, everything we haven't done, every, every thought, every action, every deed, everything about us He knows. And the list of my sins is far too great for me to count. But Jesus knows every single one of them. And He says, will you come to me and admit that you're a sinner? And from there, the admission of sin means there's a price to pay for perfect justice to take place. And you would expect that, wouldn't you? Somebody does something wrong, you would expect there'd be some consequence to that. And Jesus would say, 
Trust in me. That which you deserve, I took upon myself. I became your sin, and I was put to death, so your sin would be put to death too. So with the admission of guilt, the admission of sin, the need for forgiveness, and crying out to God, save me. I believe that you died on that cross to save me of my sin. I believe that you were placed in the tomb for three days and rose again miraculously on a third day to give me the hope and the promise of salvation. And when you were buried in the tomb, after you became my sin, my sin stayed in the tomb, buried, never to be brought up again. You know, we exhume our sin, don't we, sometimes? As Christians, you you know, the enemy will remind you of your sin, but you know what? Jesus Christ, and he says, your sin and iniquity I'll remember no more. Now, if he's not going to bring it up, if he's not going to remember it, you know when the devil tempts you to remember where you've come from and the sin that you've committed, say, it's done. My sin's gone. It's washed away. And that is the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we need Jesus. The world needs Jesus. You know, the greatest need that mankind has is for forgiveness of sin. Because once we are forgiven of our sin, everything changes. Everything changes. You become a new creation in Christ. Just like Paul was talking about, I was just like you were, but I am changed. And you can talk to folks and say, I was just, I was different. That was me then, but this is me now because Christ has saved my life. It has made me a new creation. Big question. Have you come to Christ and admitted you're a sinner and received forgiveness of your sin? I'm not talking about going to another person and asking you to forgive them of your sin or some, something you've done because nobody has shed their blood for you other than the perfect blood of Jesus Christ. Have you come to Jesus and asked him to forgive you? I want to give you an opportunity to do that today because this is life-changing. This is life-saving. The decision that you make today, either for or against Jesus Christ, has eternal consequences. A person that rejects Jesus in this lifetime and never comes to Christ has an eternal destination of hell. But for those that have come to Jesus, heaven awaits the beauty, the majesty, the glory. You know, heaven's described in the Bible as, as a place where there's no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, for the former things have been passed away. And Jesus said, I make all things new. Would you like to become new today? If you would, then please pray with me. Let's bow our heads together. And if, 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 if you know Jesus, praise God for that. Be in an attitude of prayer. Maybe there's somebody here that doesn't know Jesus yet. Just lift that person, those people up to you. God knows who they are. God knows who you are. So just come before the Lord now in prayer and say, Father, Father, forgive me of my sin. I am a sinner, and I need a Savior. And I'm so grateful that my Savior's name is Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who laid his life down on a cross and bled, and died for me, that I might be forgiven. That the punishment that I deserve has been placed upon your Son. And therefore, I place my trust in Jesus. I place my life in Jesus' hands. I thank you for loving me enough to lay down your life for me. 
and to forgive me and to cleanse me from every single element and trace of sin. I want to express my gratitude to you, my love for you, and ask you to be Lord of my life and help me to live the new life I've just become. Help me. Help me to turn from the the things that once held me back from you. And help me to bear witness of you to others that they too would be saved as well. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.